scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 35. Beginning in verse 8, going through verse 10, the Bible says, A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our key section this morning is going to be from Isaiah chapter 35. But as we begin looking at this this morning, I want us to begin first by asking the question, have you ever heard the phrase, it's a long road back? Sometimes that is used in reference to those who are going through maybe uh, therapy or recovery from a surgery or someone who's had an injury and they have to go and, and do physical therapy. And they say, well, it's going to be a long road back, that long road of recovery. We think about this today in a very spiritual sense. The long road back can also be, I think, very clearly at times, a reference to coming back to God or perhaps coming to God for the very first time. And if you look in Isaiah chapter 33, we notice that the people here are in a time of distress because of their own actions. And if you look at Isaiah 33, we find that they were deep in sin because of their rebellion to God, because of their refusal to follow His Word. If you look in Isaiah 33, and we're not going to be going through all this verse by verse by any means, but in, verse 33, in chapter 33, verse 1, he says, Woe to you who plunder, though ye have not plundered. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you'll be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, to the, to the, when you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered. Like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times, and the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is his treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall, whip, shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bastion and Carmel shake off their fruits. We find here a prayer in time of sin, in time of distress. We find God's response, but then we also find the reason why the Lord is being called upon to bring judgment upon the wicked, as he points out there in verse 7 and through verse 9, the state of the nation. And it's being spoken of in a physical way to show you in a spiritual sense how far they have fallen. 
And the picture there in verse six and or verse seven and eight about everything is just basically falling apart. Everyone is is afraid and weeping and bit and and fearful because everything was falling apart. It's pictured in a physical way to show how spiritually they were falling apart. They weren't talking about literal highways here. They're talking about they were falling apart as a nation because they were in deep sin. Now, if you look at verse ten for a moment, he says, "Now, now I will rise." says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. And so we find here yet again, the Lord's bringing judgment upon them. He uses that phrase there in verse 11, your breath as fire shall devour you. Everything they have done is going to come back upon them. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're going to eat your own words? I think that's a lot of what we're talking about here. All the things they have done is coming right back upon them. We find in verse 14, he says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? The idea there is who can endure the punishment of God? Who can endure the wrath of God? There's only one group of people we find there in verse 15. It's a reference to the righteous because they're going to face the wrath of God. He says, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Again, only the righteous can endure. That remnant, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, but those who have gone against God, those rebellious people, they're the ones who are described here in verse 14 and 15 using the questions here, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? What wicked person can survive the wrath of God? The answer is no one. And this sets us up really for the background of chapter 35 because we find in chapter 34, God brings out judgment against the people as we're going to talk about here in just a moment. And so let's continue as we think about this way of holiness that's found in chapter 35, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Again, a little bit more background as we look at this this morning. In chapters 2 through 4, the ideal Zion is, is compared and contrasted with the corruptions of the real Zion in chapters 2 through 4 of Isaiah. In chapters 9 through 11, the treatment of Israel and Judah at the hands of Assyria are compared or contrasted with the future glory of the redeemed remnant under the, under the Messiah. And in chapter 34, we find he contrasted or compared the desolation of the nations in Edom with the future glory of Zion, as we're going to find in chapter 35. And so we find it's leading up from the punishment of wicked individuals, those who are rebellious, and then we find now a slow coming back to God. And we think about this this morning. We think about these things. You think about Isaiah 33, for instance, in verse 44, that, that devouring fire, that everlasting burning. Ask yourself this question this morning. 
is the road from sin coming back to God or coming to God for the very first time, is that an easy road to travel down? Are there pitfalls and hardships that man has to avoid and overcome in order to come to God? You think about how many times you're traveling and you're using maps or something or an app or whatever it may be. There may be shortcuts and things which you can take to help you get to your location faster. There's something over here. Okay, I'm going to go this way instead and I'll detour around that hardship. I'll detour around what's going to slow me down. You know, spiritually speaking, that's not possible. There are no shortcuts to doing what is right. When we think about here in Isaiah 33 and 34, as we look at in 35, the road, of, for, for, especially for the remnant of coming to God and, and coming out and getting away from all this wickedness, was a very long road indeed. As we mentioned before, I think it was on Wednesday night, how those who came out of Egypt and was ultimately led to the promised land, at the time he got there, that those individuals are a whole different group of people, literally. Because many of them died on the road to the promised land because of their unfaithfulness, right? Numerous times they were punished by God because of their wickedness. They weren't even let out of Egypt that long before they started disobeying God in a very large way. We know that from Aaron in the case of the golden calf. You remember that? That wasn't that far removed from coming out of Egypt. And we find here in chapter 35 that we begin to find their, their, the result of their actions and no doubt the result of the inaction of the wicked individuals we find also described in chapter 35. Beginning in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 35, the Bible says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. We find in verse 1 that the ugly spiritual life will now, they will come to, to beauty of, they will come to the beauty that God's going to give them because they have come out of sin. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose coming out of the wasteland, right? Coming out of the wilderness, spiritually speaking, coming out from the desert. And what's going to happen? Blessings, rejoicing, blossoming as the rose there in verse 1. Then we find there in verse 2, this verse we find is a picture of, of spiritual beauty and gladness. What was once desert now sings, sings praises of him. They will see the glory of Jehovah being shown to them in their present uh, present blessings there. We find there, you remember back in chapter 33 and verses 10 uh, through 12 there, how, excuse me, verses 9 rather, chapter 33, how Carmel and Sharon and Lebanon are all mentioned how they're being deteriorated. But here in chapter 35, they're being mentioned as being excellent. Why? Because spiritual conditions had changed. The remnant are now uh, being brought out from among the wicked, and the wicked are going to face the doom of their actions as we continue reading here. If we look at verse 3 of, this, of Isaiah 35, in verses 3 and 4, we find he says here, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Weak hands and feeble knees are oftentimes symbols of unbelief and defeat. And God here, 
no doubt encourages them to be strong and how they are to be they're going to be strengthened by him he gives strength to those who are in need and he gives them strength for the victory he says in verse 4 say to those who are fearful hearted be strong do not fear can you imagine i haven't counted how many times you find that idea of do not fear within the bible i think you can probably find it in almost in every single book in one form or another do not fear, do not fear. Even Christ, when Peter came out to the water, came out, walked to him on the water, and he began to sink, and he said, What? Oh, you little faith, why do you, you know, why do you doubt? Basically, why do you fear? He's afraid of the storm, right? He looked at the storm, began to sink. And we find the same idea here in verse 4. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance. You notice who the repayment and the punishment is to belong to? To God. They were not to take things into their own hands. They were not to go out and start a war against these individuals. No, we find instead God will be the one who will come with vengeance. He says, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Verse 4. So their heart must be bold and courageous, fearless and strong. And it is the Lord who will avenge the wrongs done to Zion and his people. It will bring judgment upon those who afflicted his people while at the same time providing salvation for those who follow him. Judgment and salvation. And we know as we, as we look through the Bible, no one brings perfect vengeance and judgment upon the wicked like God. And no one saves and redeems like God because no one can. Mankind can punish us to the degree that they take our life. You know, God can do much more than that. God can punish the wicked if he so chooses on earth. And we know he punishes him forever after, doesn't he? No one punishes like God. He does so justly. You think back to the time of Noah, probably one of the most prominent examples we think of. How Noah built the ark for all those years. And how all those years people had a chance to listen to Noah as the Bible describes him as a preacher of righteousness, and yet they refused. And so when the ark door was closed, it was still just those eight souls on the ark. And during that time, God punished all those who were outside. Perhaps millions of people, I don't know. There was a lot more than eight. And while they mocked and doubted Moses, or excuse me, Noah rather, until the ark shut and the rain started, and it never stopped. They were punished on earth, and they are punished for everlasting. No one brings just vengeance like God. That's why we also find there in the book of Romans, uh, Paul reminds us that vengeance is, mine, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? Which means let God handle it. And here in verse 4, we have that same idea. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance. Let God handle it. With the recompense of God. I mean, what? He's going to repay them. Let God handle it. He will come and save you. Be prepared so God can come and save you so he can be found righteous. Don't worry about vengeance. God will handle that. Unlike anyone else. As we continue here, we find in verses 5 and following of Isaiah 35, rejoicing on the way. In verses 5 and following here, we first begin here 
As we look at 5 through verse through the end of the chapter here, in verses 5 through 7, you have the cause for rejoicing. Looking at verse 5 of Isaiah 35, he says here, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Does that sound familiar? Go to Matthew chapter 11. This won't be on the screen, but if you look at Matthew chapter 11, looking at verses 2 through 6 of Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Here the Bible says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and said to him, Are you the coming, coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not ashamed or not offended rather because of me. And we go back and look at Isaiah 35 verse 5 and following what does it say? The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a, like a deer, the tongue of the dumb, and the tongue, tongue of the dumb sing. It is the tongue of those who are mute. Isaiah points an awful, and reminds us an awful lot about, for his time period, the coming Messiah, Christ when he comes. We know Isaiah 53 is all about that from beginning to end. And we find here a reminder of that. And in similar ways, we find here that God is going to do what? He's going to bless those who are loyal to him in similar ways. Isaiah also is looking to the great spiritual work, you might say, of some, of some future time. The eyes and the ears have been, have been closed to God's appeal, and they'll be opened to the salvation that he offers to them. You know, just because mankind hears doesn't mean mankind actually listens, does it? I mean, these individuals have heard a lot from Isaiah. We've seen, we see throughout the major prophets of the minor prophets, throughout the whole Bible, mankind hears, hears the message of God. Do they always listen to it? No. That's why they're in the situation they're in here in chapter 35. But those who do listen, what happens? They're going to be blessed. We find here the idea of, again, the cause of their rejoicing. These physical things are being used to describe the spiritual side of things. Now they're going to be look, doing what? Looking unto God. They're going to be listening to God. But why? Because they have returned back to Him. The lame shall leave like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. They're going to have plenty of reasons to give praise to God. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Think about the song we sing, O Thy Fount of every blessing but the words of that song tune my heart to sing your praise it's about salvation isn't it remember when Christ spoke to the woman at the well he said I'll give you you know water which you'll never have you never thirst again we think about this here in verse 6 he's not talking about physical water he's talking about spiritual things he will pour forth salvation to those who are obedient. When they obey his words, salvation will be offered freely. Waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Verse 7, he says here, The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the, hab in the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Even when surrounded by danger, God continues to provide. The jackals there is pictured as being surrounded by those who want to do us harm or those who do not care for us, maybe even hate us. 
And he's pictured there in verse 7. He says, in the habitation of jackals, the idea they were being surrounded by them, where each lay, there should be grass with reeds and rushes. The thirsty land will do what? Spring forth water. The parched ground shall become a pool. So even when we're in times of great distress around us, doesn't mean that God does not provide for us. It's no great secret that our nation and our world in general is in very dark and confusing times. But God still provides for the faithful, doesn't he? That doesn't change. No matter what others are doing, God still blesses the obedient every single day, doesn't he? The book of Lamentations, Jeremiah tells us his, you know, his blessings and his, his joy, all those things are new every morning. God is always there for the faithful. And that's the idea we find there also in verse 7. Then we look at verses 8 through 10 concerning this highway of righteousness. And verse 8 is very inter interesting as we notice some wording here that's quite interesting. It says in verse 8, A highway shall be there and a road. And it should be called the highway of holiness. Now this is not a literal road. We're not looking for a literal road that where the righteous are only ones who are walking there. But it's talking about the way of life. The righteous choose a different way of living. He says here, a highway shall be there, a road. It means there's going to be a clear cut path that the righteous is going to follow, spiritually speaking. We're going to follow the path of godliness. The path of righteousness. The path that is God's command. You know, Matthew chapter 7 also talks about the same thing, doesn't it? In verses 13 and 14, the narrow path and the broad path. And he says, a narrow way, there's few who find it. Why? Because it's not an easy path. And the broad way, well, there's plenty of people going down that path. That's the wicked. That's everybody else who's not faithful to God. Look at verse 8 again. Then clean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. So obviously we find there already that who can, who can walk on this path? Only the righteous. The unclean, he says, shall not pass over. He's not talking about walking across it, getting to the other side. He's saying they can't walk on it. They can't touch it. No, it's not for them. It shall be for others. That's a reference to those who are following God. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Now, some would like to say this fool idea is the idea that even though you're foolish and don't know everything, you can walk on that path. That's not what he's talking about. The word fool there actually references a wicked person. And sometimes translations aren't the best, and I've looked at several of them. But the idea, as we look at verses 8 and following here, is not the idea that an ignorant person can walk that path. It's clearly that the wicked person cannot. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, in all reality, put it in context, and you see the terminology there, it's although a fool cannot walk on it, is the idea. They can't be on it. It's not a reference to someone who's ignorant or someone who just doesn't know better. No, the fool here, a actual definition of that word is a wicked person. So he's not saying the fool can walk on it. He says, but it shall be for others who walk the road, although a fool shall not go astray, although a fool shall what? Shall not be on it. They're not going to depart from their path of wickedness and be on it. The fool cannot be a reference to the innocent person here. It's a reference to wickedness. The path of righteousness in verse 8 is only for those who are what? Righteous. The unclean shall not pass over it. That section cannot deviate from the very next one, can it? The wicked will not be on it. Verse 9, no, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. 
Now again, the physical foot for the spiritual. No enemy is going to be on that path of righteousness. Now make no mistake, they may be all around it. They may be waiting for you to step off and dip your toe in the water and see what it feels like, but they won't be on the path. But friends, they'll be there waiting for us if we try to deviate from it. We try to take the exit ramp for just five minutes. They'll be there waiting. You know what happens to zookeepers who don't pay attention? They don't last very long. You think about numerous individuals who have been in jobs they worked for for years and it's been dangerous and they've done it for years and years and years and one day they don't pay close enough attention and something very bad happens. It's the same way here. If we're not paying close attention and we don't realize that we're slipping off that path, that lion, that ravenous beast, as he mentions there in verse 9, we're out there waiting for you. What happens if you get too close to a very dangerous animal? It could be life-ending. And so we think about this in verse 9. Yes, they will not be on that path. Yes, they will not be on that highway of righteousness or holiness. But it doesn't mean they won't be out there waiting for you to step off when you make a mistake. It shall, be not, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Those who are righteous will walk on that path. Again, it cannot be the foolish, wicked person who walks upon it. Looking now at verse 10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away and sorrow and sighing shall flee away so this is an image as you described of those who have passed through the wilderness of affliction and sin and are now enjoying the delight and the joy of redemption you think about this for a second. You think about that last phrase, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. If you go look at the last one of the last chapters of Revelation, I think it's chapter 22, where it talks about when we reach the idea of when we reach heaven, there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, the former things have passed away. And that's how he uses it to describe what it's like to come back to God. Now we know Christians can still face hardships, but we face much fewer than the world does, don't we? Doesn't the world have a whole different list of concerns than we do? Doesn't the world have a whole list of different desires than we do? Doesn't the world have a whole different idea of what pleasure is than the Christian does? See, the world views things in an entirely different scope because they have an entirely different set of glasses, so to speak. The Christian looks at the world without those things. We don't look for the world for pleasure, sinful pleasure. We don't look to the world for hope that is not lasting. No, we look to God. He says there in verse 10, in the ransom, that is those who have been bought back by the Lord. That's what the word ransom means. They have been bought back by the Lord. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. You notice how they come back, not dragging their feet and moping about it. You know, one of the most discouraging things is not just to see people who haven't been coming for a while, and talk with them and then have them come back. That's not discouraging. What's discouraging is you don't talk with them and convince them to come back. When they come back, they're moping about it. If that's our attitude, friends, why are we even here? See, our attitude can ruin everything. It doesn't matter if we're sitting here today if our attitude and our heart is not in it. We can sing every song word for word without the songbook. We can know Scripture beyond Scriptures. But if our heart is not right, then it doesn't matter. 
When these individuals in verse 10, when they're described as coming back to God, they're described as coming back to God with joy. He says they come back and they're singing. They're joyous there in verse 10. Everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. You get the picture? They were happy. They were happy to be with God. They were happy to get away from sin and wickedness. They were glad to do it. You think about that today. There are those who we talk to. They're not so glad to get out of it. But these individuals were. He says there in verse 10, As a result, what happens, the very last phrase there says, And sorrow and sighing shall flee away, because what they were once concerned about, they're not worried about anymore. Sin is not a problem anymore, because they have repented those things, and God has now accepted them, and now they are back to where they need to be. And they were happy about it. So let's think about some lessons for us today. We think about Isaiah chapter 35, and we see in chapter 34, as we mentioned before, uh, 33 and 34, their sin and the punishment of it. And chapter 35, finally coming out of it. You know, the way out of wickedness can be very, very long. There is a reason why people stay in sin, because it's easy. You think about the path of, that broad path he mentions there in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. You know why there's so many people on it? Because it's easy. Turn with me, if you will, for a second to Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. Looking at verses 13 and 14. He says here, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. There are many to go in by it. Why? Because it's broad. It's picture as that gate is broad. Because narrow is the gate, and what's the next word, next two words, and difficult, difficult. That's where you'll lose a lot of people, difficult. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, but notice here, which leads to life. It leads to life. But then notice the last phrase there, and there are few who find it. You know, those who we speak about there in chapter 35 who are coming out of wickedness and returning to God, they're referred to as a remnant because they're a small group of people. The majority did not come out. The majority ignored. The majority would not return to God. So we'll talk more about this evening in Zechariah, in our final lesson on Zechariah, the same idea is seen there as well. They refused to turn back to God. The rebellious can take a long time to come out of sin. Going back to Isaiah 33, verses 7 through 9. Sure, their valiant ones shall cry outside. Their ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. All these ways are describing their sin, the effects of sin, and how they're refusing to come out of it. All those things. A broken covenant, despised city. No one guards a man. Earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like the wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruit, which means they're barren. Nothing good has ever come out of sin. Nothing good has ever come out of sin. We find here its picture as being in a physical way. What happens? Everything is gone. Everything is laid waste. Everything that is sinful turns to garbage. That's what we find in Isaiah 33. It describes, at least in part, the spiritual condition severely immoral and disobedient. 
But our second point is, returning to God is a vein of beauty. There's a reason why he describes it as, as, it, as a rose that's blossoming. There's a reason why he describes it in such ways as, you know, the, the desert or, the, or the, the waters are flowing in the desert and springing forth all those things. Lebanon flourishing and on and on he goes, showing the beauty of coming back and being faithful to God. Because there is beauty in that. Much of Isaiah 35 is about the beauty that comes as a direct result of returning to God. Christians, spiritually speaking, are to take the high road, the road of righteousness. Going back to Isaiah 35 here in just a moment. Looking here again at verses 8 and following. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but shall be for others. That's where we are to walk. You know, sometimes if you were to tell someone, well, the Bible has a higher standard, a higher plane of righteousness than what the world thinks, so they may think you're arrogant. You're not arrogant, but you are correct. The Bible does have a much higher plane of righteousness, a higher plane of how we are to live. You know, God himself tells us that his ways are higher than our ways, right? Which, why is that? Because they're righteous, and mankind's ways are not always so righteous. A higher plane of living. As we close this morning, we want to remember that we shouldn't make the mistake to think that the wicked are found in the highway of holiness because they're not. It is reserved clearly for the righteous. There's only one way to be on this road, isn't there? There's only one way to be on that road that leads to, to God. You notice it's described as a road, not as a destination. Which means it's leading us somewhere, isn't it? It's leading us to God. This morning, as you think about these things, you think about this warning we find from Isaiah, this warning we find about what happens when you're not walking in that pathway of righteousness, that the wolves are waiting there, the lions are waiting there, the beasts, the ravenous beasts are waiting there. But so long as you are on that road of righteousness, what does God say will not be found there? Not the wicked. No reason to fear. See, the way of righteousness provides security on everything else. Anything else doesn't provide security. So we want to be safe, spiritually speaking. We have to be on the right road. And sometimes that means we have to ask ourselves, what road are we on? Are we trying to do things according to our own plan, our own steps? Or are we trying to do things according to God's will? You know the reason why? Those individuals paid the price for their actions back in chapter 33 and 34 because they weren't on the highway to, highway to holiness. They were on their own selfish path that was leading them to destruction. Matthew 13, verse 7 and 14, or Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. So this morning, as you think about these things, you think about the path you're on. If you're not sure on the right path, I'd be glad to do whatever we can to help, to help you, to assist you in getting on that right path. This morning, we can help you anyway and come forward now. I'm going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected.